Hello. This is Annalise Carpenter. I'm Daddy. Thanks, Jeff. Um, and we have the privilege to be bringing the Bible reading to you tonight. It is Mark 13, chapter 10, 13, 13 to 32, 31. And Annalise will start and... Don't you do a better job than me, okay? I will. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He saw them let the little children that come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these truly I tell you anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it and he took the children in his arms placed his hand on them and blessed them. Very good. That's the first time she's ever done the reading. <clears throat> and continuing from verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life, 
but many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you so much for that. I'm not sure who did better. Well, good evening once more. It's great to be here with you guys. Thank you so much for coming. And um, again, we're, we're skipping over a large chunk of scripture. We're doing the whole chapter of Mark 10. So we've got quite a lot of ground to cover. Again, I ask you, please go home, dig deeper into this. You're going to get a lot more out of it if you do. I hope that you've done that with what Pastor Brendan brought last week. Let's just pause and pray before we get into this. Father God, I thank you so much for your presence, your power, your love, which has poured out on us so freely. And Lord, we come tonight because we want to hear from you. Lord, I pray that is the attitude of each and every person here. Lord, will you soften our hearts to hear the truth of your word? And Lord, more than anything, will you help us to engage in that with you? Will you help us to be willing to do what it takes to draw closer to you? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we approach this chapter, we have to think about what has actually been going on. And we know that the Pharisees have a very low opinion of Jesus. And so this, as this chapter starts, it should come as no surprise that first and foremost, they're testing Jesus. And the question that Pharisees posed to Jesus is about divorce. But they were not really interested in Jesus' answer in this case. Most of the Jewish men took it as their unquestionable right to divorce a woman. And they could do that for whatever reason they wanted. They didn't have to have a particularly significant reason. And this is one of the reasons for their question to Jesus. Now keep in mind that the Pharisees had aligned themselves with the Herodians at this stage. And generally the Pharisees and the Herodians hated each other. And uh, the Herodians were a political group that supported Herod the Great and uh, his kingdom. And uh, the Herodians, as I said, didn't particularly like the Pharisees, but they agreed to have this truce or become united because they both wanted to get rid of Jesus. They were united in that one thing. And so the topic of divorce was very touchy for the Herodians because uh, of John the Baptist and his stand against Herod's divorce and marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife. And so in approaching Jesus, the Pharisees were hoping to store up greater, uh, stir up greater strife for Jesus to get these guys to really uh, decide that they had to get rid of him. And as we read this, we have to be aware that there's a play on words as well. The Pharisees asked Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? By their law, it was. But that is not how Jesus answers. He says, what did Moses command you? And their answer is very telling. They say, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce. And that was true. Jesus asked what was commanded. And they answered with what was allowed. Do you see the change, the significance in what was actually there? They're quoting Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4, where permission is given for divorce. And the permission that is given is totally at the discretion of the husband. There's no required reasons for this divorce. In fact, the passage says that if he finds some indecency in her, how broad is that? If he finds some indecency in her, he can divorce her as long as he writes a certificate of divorce. So these men would divorce their wives for very trivial matters. And if there was anything about them that they disliked, they'd divorce them. 
And the only command here is that those who have divorced cannot be remarried, as in they can't marry the same person again. That's the only condition that was actually in this allowance that was made. But what we need to understand is the regulations were there to protect the women, to protect the women and the children. Because you see, when they were abandoned, they had no rights. There was no provisions for them for income or anything like that. And so this was allowed solely and this system was put in place so out of necessity the women could be remarried at that time. It also prevented her former husband of laying claim to her once she's remarried and destroying that second marriage as well. And what we need to know is this allowance was made because of men's hard hearts. We can't forget that. This isn't a law of God. It was made because of men's hard hearts and this allowance was made because these men with hard hearts failed to honour God they failed to honour their wives they failed to provide for his wives and children from that marriage when he divorced her and it was introduced to minimise the damage to the women and the children but also to minimise the damage to society divorce is a sin there's no way around that in scripture Divorce is a sin. And that sin originates because of the hardness of men's hearts. And the problem is, the Pharisees and so many people today have got this round the wrong way. And I need to remind you, I'm standing before you as a divorced man. The Pharisees and so many today have approached this totally incorrectly. They've approached marriage incorrectly and they've approached this topic and this subject with a view that the marriage will actually end. And so before the marriage has even started in a way, they're asking for instruction in how they should end this and how they should end it correctly. They want options so that divorce can be allowed and continue. But Jesus pushes part what is allowed and answers with God's original plan. Mark 10, 6 to 8 says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but they are one flesh. And this is another case of the Pharisees elevating what was permitted over what God commands. God's intention always was and always will be that marriage is for life. And when Jesus points back, to this, he's pointing back to Genesis, another book of Moses, and these guys know that. And what we need to understand is that Jesus is again protecting the rights of women. They're not an extra appendage of the man that can be discarded any time that they want, or when it's convenient, or when they desire someone else. Jesus is giving dignity and value to the women. In that day, they were powerless. They were commodities. They could be sold off. Just like children. And so I think it's no coincidence that we come into this section too about hindering children. Jesus has defended the rights of women in the marital relationship and then this, children, this situation with the children occur. And as I've said, children and women in that day and age were mistreated. They had very little right and so they were considered as commodities to be used and often mistreated and abused by men. 
by husbands and fathers in how they saw fit. And obviously this is not God's way. The disciples are learning what it is to follow Jesus. And in this story with their children, they've had a taste of a little bit of power. And not understanding who Jesus really is, they exert that newfound authority and power over these children and they do it in an inappropriate way. They assume a position that they've never been appointed to. And they see themselves as the gatekeepers of Jesus and his teaching. And they have no hesitation in rebuking these parents for bringing their children to Jesus. And it's highly likely that these were infants. They were being carried by the mothers at the time. But again, Jesus intercedes. And when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. He said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And if we are to be followers of Christ, we must become like children. And this is not necessarily talking about inherent qualities that kids have. Because even though we speak about the kids who have amazing qualities, there's plenty of parents here, and I can testify to myself, that children can be demanding. They can be, they can be uh, short-tempered. Sorry, They can be selfish. They can be cantankerous. And they can be angels. But what we need to keep in mind is that the children here had no status the only way that they can get to Jesus is to be brought by someone else. And Jesus is showing in this example how these little kids can't stand against the disciples. The disciples have a desire to assert their authority and power. But these little ones are weak and they're easily pushed aside. And the crazy thing is when we think of weakness, we're told that God works best in weakness. When we consider these children, as I've said, the most likely infants carried in their mother's arms, they have no ambition of their own. They have, no, they, ha they have this natural humility. They are dependent and totally trusting upon their parents. They need to rely on them. And so it's the first role of parents, first and foremost, then we as a people of God, laity and leaders alike, to bring young people to Christ. It's a role the parents must play. You can't blame the church if your children do not come to Christ, if you're not doing anything at home. It's something that we need to do together and we need to encourage each other in this. There's going to be parents who have frustrations because they don't know how to bring their, people, their kids to Jesus. Their kids turn away from Christ and they're going to come to you. They're going to ask for advice. And we as a people should be building each other up in the faith. We should be helping others with what has worked for us. And so when they come to us, we need to support them. We need to pray for them. We need to thank them that they have this desire and hunger to see their children grow in faith. And we need to encourage them. And more than that, we have this incredible kids ministry in this church. It's absolutely fantastic. I don't think you appreciate just how good it is because you haven't seen how bad it is elsewhere. And it's really amazing. And I want you... You're hearing my voice. I want you to encourage those people who are involved in kids' church. You'll see those green shirts on Sunday morning. You go and say, thank you so much for being involved in kids' ministry. Your work is vital to the life of these kids. Our kids' club. How incredible is that? How many non-Christian kids do we have come this last year? Yeah, 40% of 250. 40%. Non-Christian kids, so it's over 80 non-Christian kids, never church, come into this place and they get the gospel, I'd have to say, almost every moment of every day. 
It is so saturated in the gospel of Jesus. And better than that, they take the gospel message home and they go, Mum, Dad, can we play this? We've got to learn this. What a con job, Margie. (laughs) But they hear the gospel message and guess what? Mum and Dad hear it as well. We have to thank these people. We have to pray for them. We have to encourage them. This is a great and mighty work. Jesus says, bring the little children to me. There's something else that really gets up my nose. I've said a few things I won't repeat today in another church. It involves smelly trout on the side of people's heads. But uh, kids, get this in your head, kids are not the church of tomorrow. I don't care what anyone says to you. Kids are not the church of tomorrow. They are the church today. If they're here, if they're living and they're breathing, they're part of the church. And we need to encourage them. I love getting down on my knees, eyeballing the young kids in this church and having conversations with them. Some of the stuff that comes out of their mouth is absolutely fantastic. You should try it. They're so wise for such small kids. I just love it. Anyway, kids, they're part of the church today. Encourage them. Encourage those leaders and things like that. Encourage the parents. You know, some parents really struggle and uh, they just don't know what to do with their kids, especially the boys. They seem to run riot. I'm not sure if I should be praising God. I've got two kids, two daughters, especially entering the teenage years, but we'll see how that goes. What we need to realise too is that what we do, that was good. Now I've lost everything. What have I done? That's cool. Okay. We don't attain salvation by works. We come to the story of the rich young ruler here. And it's, interest, it's an interesting exchange, and uh, I, I didn't realise exactly what was going on here, but as this rich young ruler comes to Jesus, he greets Jesus with a traditional greeting. And uh, as he comes down, he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit internal, eternal life? And um, the thing is, Jesus doesn't give the expected traditional reply. The expected traditional reply would be, as this, I'd imagine, well-dressed young man hits his knees in front of, teacher, in front of Jesus and goes, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' response should have been, most honoured and good sir, and then give him his answer. That was the tradition. That was what was expected. And uh, Jesus' response was, why do you call me good? There's no one good except God. It was quite a rebuke. He's coming back at this young man. Because again, Jesus knows hearts. And it deflects this man's attempt at flattery. He knows. And he cuts to the heart of the matter. Only God is good. You need to realise that, young man. Only God is good. And this young man was expecting Jesus to respond in respect and to honour him before the people that were gathered there. But it's a rebuke. God alone is good. Anything and everything we do does not even come close to the goodness of God. And then Jesus directs this man to the Ten Commandments. And it's interesting that these, ten, these commandments that he points to are the commands that are relating to other people. They're the ones that are about how you treat others. And we know nothing of this man's life, but we have his response. And he says, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And when we think about it, we don't know if this man is defending his position in life or if this is a cry of triumph, where it's like, yes, I've done all this, Lord, and you're affirming my lifestyle because of that. I've been doing everything I'm supposed to do. I've got eternal life. This is great. But regardless of his reasons, he was wrong. He's got it all wrong. 
Jesus looks at this man and he loves him. That is key to what is going on here as well. As Jesus looks upon this man, he sees that in all good conscience, this man believes he's doing what is right. He believes he's doing the right thing. And Jesus doesn't sneer at him. He doesn't make fun at him because of his ill-placed thinking. And Jesus loves him. And because Jesus loves him, he challenges him directly. We've got to get a head around this. We have so many people that we love, so many people that we care for, and we will not challenge them. We say we love them, but we will not challenge them because we don't want to create issues and problems. We don't want to sever friendships. And friends, they're destined for hell if you don't speak. We need to challenge them. And so Jesus challenges this man. Jesus tells him to go and sell everything that he has and then come, follow him. Following the commandments, doing good things, being a nice person and all those things are totally worthless from eternal perspective. The only thing that matters is how you respond to Jesus. You'll either daily acknowledge and live for him or you'll reject him. That's the way it is. Rejection of Jesus is often subtle. It was for this man. He thought he was connected to God because he lived well. He obeyed the commandments that related to others. But if Jesus was to ask him if the young man loved the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind and all his strength, I wonder if it would have been different. I wonder if he would have been able to answer honestly and say that he did. Or to be clear to him that he loved what he had more. He loved his possessions, he loved his wealth, he loved his status, and he loved the respect that he was given. And it's interesting too because Jews equated wealth with God's blessing. And that's why the disciples are so shocked here. You know, God has blessed this man. He's given him so much. Why is it that he can't enter the kingdom of heaven? They would believe that this guy was doing everything right, and that's why God was pouring his blessings out upon him. But again, Jesus refutes that. And the young man and the disciples are shocked. Who then can be saved? If the one who is blessed by God can't be saved, who can be? But all things are possible for God. Think of that rich young man guy called Saul I'm sure you know about that guy he had everything he gave it all up and he followed Jesus and he counted it all as worthless compared to knowing Christ this whole chapter seems to be about selfishness and we come across the disciples here too and they seem to desire favor of God as well Jesus has set his face to Jerusalem. He's just told his disciples again that he's going to Jerusalem and they're going to beat him to death. He'll be mocked, spat upon and crucified. And this is very much a case of what's being said going in one ear and out the other. And um, straight after what Jesus has said about his death, these two come up and ask to sit one on his left hand and one on his right hand in his kingdom. 
And back in chapter 9, 34, the disciples were arguing over who was going to be the greatest in God's kingdom. And Jesus addressed it there, and you think that the matter would have been put to rest, but that's not the case. Here it is, it's risen up again. And these guys have ignored what Jesus has said about his death. It's crazy. It's like it wasn't even in there. And they're still expecting him to establish this earthly rule and kingdom, and they want it. They want to be part of that. As Jesus' friends, they think that they should have special privileges and honour and rights as Jesus brings this kingdom in. But we know in hindsight that Jesus' glory will be attained through incredible tribulation. And these guys, they say they can drink the cup that Jesus is going to drink. But as Jesus' eternal reign begins at the cross, he has two robbers. One on the right, one on the left. This is the cup that Jesus drank. And he drank it all the way to the bottom. But James and John, they didn't want that. They didn't want Jesus to die. They wanted the good bit. These guys have an ambition that is not of God. They want to rule and reign with Jesus, but they don't want to go through the suffering that is involved in having that role. And Jesus answers in the only way he can. You do not know what you're asking. And Jesus tells them that the places at his right and left are known only to God and prepared by those great servants who they've been destined for, destined for from the beginning of time. They will have that place and role and honour. I think Jesus' question about can you drink the cup that I drink just hangs in the air. I think they would want him, he would want them to understand what he's trying to say but they don't really get it. Can you drink from the cup that I drink? I'm not sure they would have even thought about it. All they could think about was what they wanted. Yep, Jesus, we can drink from this cup. It seems so flippant as we sit and read it like that. They have no idea what it is that they've said they've signed up for. They are so confident in their own strength and ability. They've shown they're no different to the rich young ruler. They don't understand still that Jesus is their only hope, not anything they can do or say or achieve. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. And when his disciples get that, when they realise that in sacrificing themselves, all of their hopes, all of their dreams, all of their ambitions for the greater good of knowing Jesus, then they'll have life and life to the full. And the question remains, how can we be saved? And we move on to this guy, this last story in the chapter, blind Bartimaeus. And it's an incredible contrast to what has gone on before. Here is a man with very little He's despised by the people, and when he cries for help, they tell him to be quiet, but he cries out all the more. And Jesus hears him, and he tells the crowd to call him, to come to him. And we need to understand a few things here. This is a man with no social standing whatsoever. This is a man who would have been hated by those who walked past him, and yet his name is recorded in Scripture. Can you, I mean, how mind-blowing is that? I don't know the names of most of the Pharisees. I don't know the names of any of the Sadducees, but I know the name of this guy, Blind Bartimaeus. His name is recorded because of the faith that he showed. His name is recorded because he got it. He comes to Jesus. And there's an incredible thing that happens here. 
As he comes to Jesus, he throws aside his cloak. Do you understand the significance of that? This is a guy who has nothing in this world. That cloak would have been incredibly valuable to him. It would have been the thing that he laid before his feet so that when he begged people, they would put whatever they were offering him on that cloak. And then in the evenings when people went home, that cloak would be the only thing that provided warmth for him. So even though for us it was insignificant, it wasn't worth much at all, this is everything this guy has. And in the face of Jesus, he throws us aside as he goes to be with Jesus. And he comes before Jesus. Jesus looks upon him and he says, what would you have me do for you? It's pretty obvious, isn't it? And yet Jesus asks. I believe he asks us to. He wants us to tell him. He wants us to verbalise it. And Bartimaeus says, Rabbi, teacher, I want to see. It's really that simple. I want to see. And Jesus says, like he said to so many others, go your way. Your faith has made you well. He doesn't lay hands on Bartimaeus. He doesn't do anything special. He just says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And what does Bartimaeus do? He doesn't go anywhere. He's been transformed by Jesus. His faith in Jesus has been demonstrated in his actions. And he doesn't go. He follows Jesus. And I, I don't know what happened to him after that, but he follows Jesus. He abandons everything and everyone he's known before. And he follows Jesus. And nothing was going to prevent him from doing so. Again, I stand before you. I don't know what you're going through right at the moment. I want to know, are you like the Pharisees? Are you questioning Jesus? Are you saying, Jesus, why has this happened? I don't understand. This is what, not what I planned in my life. Lord, I expected so much more. Is that you? Is that where you're at this evening? Are you like the Pharisees and you're twisting the words that are in Scripture so they suit your plans and purposes rather than submitting fully to God? Are you one of those people, like the Pharisees again, that elevate what you think and what you believe is right over what God's Word says? And I want to ask each of you, how do you conduct yourselves? I want you to think about how you speak in this place. Do you speak in a way that would encourage young children to draw closer to God? Do they appreciate that you're a follower of Christ simply by how you conduct yourself? Because we're responsible for those young kids. They may not be yours personally, but we're responsible to grow them in Christ. Are you a person that asserts authority that's not even yours? Are you willing to give that up? Are you willing to defend the weak? Those who haven't got a voice for themselves. I want you to think of the rich young ruler. Are you willing to put aside all your hopes, all your dreams, all your ambitions? everything you are, everything you wanted to be, are you willing to lay that at the cross of Christ and ask him to take you and use you for his glory and his purposes? Are you willing to submit to him?
What have you elevated above God? And this is so easy to do. We say we love Jesus. And, you know, if I was to stand before you and I was to say, I'll give you a thousand bucks every week as long as you give a hundred bucks back to me. Who'd go for that? Yeah, I think we would. Do we realise how much God has given us? And he asked for so little back. So little. We've got to get serious. We've got to be willing to give back to God because he gives us so much. He gives us an abundance. And he doesn't expect much. Give him the first part of your day. Make an appointment with him and don't break it. Pray to him. Speak with him. Read your word. Get to know him. Anything else is a God that is against him. You've made it a God because you've given a greater priority. Desiring God's favour. I've given my life to Jesus. This is what I want, Lord. Have you ever done that? I keep saying about the Ferrari, I keep praying for it. Still hasn't turned up in my driveway. Seriously, guys, I don't want a Ferrari. I really don't want a Ferrari. But sometimes we seem to pray and expect God to answer in a certain way. We do not have a right to do that. He is God. And you know what? When we get to glory, I know I was in the habit when I was a young person, I say, when I get to glory, I'm going to ask God this, I'm going to ask why you did that, I'm going to ask him why you did this. And the thing is, when I get to glory, I'm not going to care less. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be in his presence. Every question I ever had is going to be answered instantly. And no one will ever say, God, that was wrong. No one. Because he is righteous. He is just. He is good. And we need to realize sometimes when we pray, God's not going to give us what we think is right. I've got to tell you, it's very arrogant for us to think God should do what I believe is right over what he thinks is right. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Again, I want to ask you, if you've given up your hopes, your dreams, your ambitions and laid them at Jesus' feet, that's so important. Are we willing to submit our lives afresh to him tonight? Are we willing to give our future into his hands? And the final question, like blind Bartimaeus, have our eyes been opened to Jesus? The Jesus I've been talking about, the Jesus I talk about so frequently, can you see who he is? And in seeing him, just like Bartimaeus cast aside that cloak, are we willing to cast aside our former life and say, all for you, Lord? That's where we need to be. Guys, I say it all the time. I want so much to pray with you. I want to encourage you. I want to strengthen you in the faith. There's no judgment down the front here. If God's been challenging you tonight, please come forward. Let's pray together. Let's celebrate as the angels celebrate in glory. Let me pray. Father God, you're a good God. And Lord... I want to ask for forgiveness for myself. I want to ask for forgiveness of those here. When we think we know better than you. Please forgive us, Lord. And Lord, lead us to that place 
where we just capture a glimpse of your glory, your majesty, your power, you enthroned. We want to know you, Lord. I want to know you. And Lord, may that humble us. May that make us realise before you an almighty or loving or powerful or gracious God. We are nothing. And yet you love us. You want us. Lord, draw us to that place where we will submit fully to you. Break our hearts for the things that breaks yours. And give us a desire and a passion to seek you each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.